I have a dream that all men are created equal. your story. I'm your host Ian Kath. This is episode 28. If all goes well when this episode comes out, I'll be heading off to Bellingen for the global carnival that's happening down there in uh, the end of this week. I'm looking forward to getting down there. I'm going to be catching with family and friends. That's my major priority. But while I'm there, I'm going to be hanging around a lot of cool musicians and the like. So I hope to get a few of the artists on the show. Uh, We'll see how things go. The site, of course, is yourstorypodcast.com. Uh, like I keep telling you every time I do one of these shows, you can comment at the end of the post. You can send me an email. That's chat at yourstorypodcast.com. There's links there for iTunes and the feeds, all the usual sort of things. I've got a few episodes out now. We're up to, what, episode 28, and I'm I'm meeting a lot of different people. And I'd just like to, you know, because I do care a great deal about these episodes, and I actually try to get a variety of people, all different lifestyles, if you happen to know somebody who you think might be interested in one of these episodes, uh, why don't you burn them off a CD or tell them where the link is or just share it with them. You know, they may not be interested in the whole show and they may not want to actually subscribe, but there might be one or two episodes here and there that they're interested in. I find that's how some people like to listen to your stories. Yeah, just pick the eyes out of it, the actual episodes that they like. Remember, you can also stumble and dig it. That's always good. And the music today is, of course, from Iota Promo Net, where I actually picked up this little funky jazz track that you can hear in the background. You can always go over there and uh, get the music. You can buy it. Supports the artists who allow me to have a few tracks off their albums so I can put a bit of music in the mix. I like it. hope you do too. Talking about catching up with family and friends, uh, today's episode is another one of the episodes out of London. This is the last one that I got. While I was there, I managed to catch up with some family members. My sister married into a British family, her husband's English, and I managed to catch up with uh, a few of the family members uh, there, sister and father and a few, you know, a few people who married into the situation. And it was, a, it was a wonderful dinner, and while I was there, I was talking with Colin, and I thought... Yeah, we were having a bit of a yarn about a few different things. We were talking a bit of politics and yeah, what life was like in Britain. And I started getting quite fascinated with what he had to say. And I thought, hello, here we are. We've got a man who's got the better part of eight decades of experience. And he also has the ability to share his thoughts very clearly. And he is an intelligent man who's had you know, a great deal of experience through the war and the migrations of the 60s and 70s. And not only that, he's been fully immersed in a French family that he married into so he's bicultural you know yet another one of those bicultural stories that I seem to keep falling across so I thought yeah look, let's do it so I asked him to come on the show when we recorded this episode as is often the situation when I do these episodes when we actually turn the recorder off the conversation continues and sometimes can continue for quite a long time this time I actually leant back over and I turned the recorder back on and I managed to capture a few other things. It's a little bit more casual, even though it is just a casual conversation, it tends to be a little bit more formal during the actual recording of the show. And we continued yarning for some time. 
Now, I have not edited it into the actual show. I was originally thinking about doing that, but when I listened back to it, I thought, no, I'm just going to leave it stand as it's on its own. So what I've done is when you hear the, um, the, the outro, after that, it will continue for some minutes of the, just the casual conversation that Colin and I had. Uh, you're welcome to listen to that, of course, or you're welcome to just turn it off at that point. It's entirely up to you. You've got the control of the uh, stop and start button, haven't you? So it's up to you. But I just thought there were some interesting things that we continue to talk about, so I'll just tag it on the end. Uh, but it, the guts of the story is uh, fascinating. It's great to get some insight into British culture. So this is Colin's story. Twenty fifth of August, two thousand eight. I'm sitting with a gentleman who I've known for about fifteen years. He's my sister's father-in-law. I want to talk today about what it's like to be an Englishman in a country that has seen a lot of change in the last few decades, and and your life about biculturalism about sailing, which I know you're passionate about, and whatever else we managed to come up with in this course, this conversation. So, Colin Kerr, welcome to your story. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you on, Colin. Like I said, you're, we're sort of through marriage related. You're my father-in-law and law, I suppose. First of all, it's a really simple question, I suppose, Colin. What are you most passionate about in life? What has been your greatest passion that you've seen throughout your life? Well, uh, you've mentioned I'm very uh, passionate about uh, sport and um, uh, swimming up till the age of about 24 when I came out of the army. Um, that was uh, my dominant sport, followed very quickly by sailing, followed by skiing. And, uh, of course, the, the natural gentleman's uh, sport of golf um, so those those things have uh, formed, if you like, a hobby, an activity, as far as I'm concerned. The swimming. I've heard a little bit about swimming. How far did you get in competitive swimming? Well, it, it, it was a funny event because um, I, I was always uh, keen on swimming when I was at school. And um, one day I was in the, the local bars and I was pounding up and down the uh, baths. And uh, somebody came along and said to me, um, would you mind doing 100 yards as fast as you can? Oh, I did 100 yards as fast as I could. And he said, well, uh, it may interest you to know you've just broke the club record. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, you must join the club. Anyway, that year and the following year, I won the county championships um, without too much coaching. I mean, but I, I was encouraged to do the right things. That tailed off, as I said. I swam for the army. Um, I tailed off as soon as I finished my military service. What was the military service? I haven't heard about this. Because I, I don't know your exact age, but I imagine you would have been mid-teens when the war finished. I was 16 when the war finished, okay. uh, 10 when it started. Okay. And um, that was a very dramatic backdrop for any 
any kid uh, to see, um, you know, life in the raw uh, on occasions. You were here in London? Uh, no, we, we evacuated as a family. We evacuated from London and we went to Bristol and Bristol got absolutely got blasted out of out of the uh, out of the scene i mean the the morning after i couldn't i couldn't make my way to the school i mean it it was uh, completely devastated um, my father lost his um lost his office uh it was completely demolished all they found was his masonic apron Oh, really? I don't know whether you know what yeah. that is. Yes, yes, I do, actually. I've, I've got relatives on mum's side of the family who are yeah. Masons, yeah. Not that he was a very devout Mason. Right. But um, So, um, to give me a bit of a backdrop, I know that London got the Blitz. Yeah. But uh, Bristol got hammered as well. Oh, yeah, very much so. Right. Yeah. What was it? A, was it a um, shipbuilding town or something? Wasn't well, it? it was a port, very right. important port. Um, it was quite a... I mean, it's called the Queen of the West, uh, Bristol... Uh, a lot of industry there. My um, my cousin's grandfather, his grandmother, his uncle, his aunt, four children, got killed in the Blitz. Right. Uh, they were uh, subject to a direct hit. And uh, uh, that was uh, that was quite an emotional experience. Sure. For sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. So the war happened... Why did you want to go into the army? I didn't want to go in the army. Ah. <laughs> the British government wanted me to go in the army. So there was conscription? There was conscription. Was there conscription during the war as well? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, you had to join up unless you were a conscientious objector. Right. And um, when I was thrown out of school, and I was more or less politely expelled... What did you do? <laughs> Nothing. That <laughs> Trouble, absolutely nothing. I was the worst student, the most uh, provocative student that you could imagine. And um, uh, I think it was mainly because I went to six schools in six years. I was changing from town to town, so to speak. And um, in 1944, the headmaster said to me gently, Colin, uh, what do you want to do next year? So I said, well, you know, carry on. He said, well, I don't think it's doing you much good. So he said, I've got a, a jolly good idea for you. He said, why don't you become an articled pupil to a firm of chartered surveyors in London? London? I mean, magic. <laughs> um, so I think it was with the collusion of my father that this happened, because he always wanted me to be a chartered surveyor. So I went to London whilst the war was still on, and whilst the doodlebugs were dropping, not very many of them, but... Uh, Describe uh, the doodlebugs for those listening. Doodlebug was the first jet automatic pilot bomb. Right. And they launched them, and they had a time factor on them, and the time factor cut out the engine when it was approximately over London. And then you hear, heard this chug, 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 chug uh, of, the, of the beat of the engine, the, the jet engine, and suddenly there was a silence. That was when you ran to cover. That would have been terrifying. Because <laughs> once it goes quiet, you know you're, you're within hearing distance of it hitting 
the ground somewhere. Yeah, well, it wasn't terrifying to a 15-year-old boy. I mean, uh, uh, we, we got up on the roof to see where <laughs> it was going to fall. <laughs> uh, young, dumb and bulletproof. Anyway. <laughs> and uh, that was also uh, a fascinating experience because... Um, from two points of view, because you've got to realise that London <coughs> was the aircraft carrier for the invasion of Europe. Mm. And when I got to London, I couldn't believe it. It was full of military. I mean, Americans uh, predominantly, because all the British were away fighting <laughs> elsewhere. But Czechs, French, Polish, uh, Canadians, Australians. They were all there, and uh, it was like one vast military barrack. Quite extraordinary. Again, for a 15-year-old, exciting? Oh, yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. And, uh, you know, you saw the odd truck with German soldiers, prisoners of war going through. All the countryside was, uh, was uh, helped agriculturally uh, by the Italian prisoner of war. Um, they weren't so dangerous. So they put them on the farms and uh, helped uh, with, the, with, the, with the crops. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So your military experience, it, that was post-war? Well, that, that was post-war. Um, uh, I had the, the very good fortune to uh, come across a brilliant teacher. It was three months from my matriculation. And I got into his class by the fact that my normal teacher was uh, uh, away sick. And this man was absolute magic. Uh, he, I understood immediately what he was putting over. He taught me all sorts of uh, formulae that I could remember and concentrate on. Is this doing. a school or surviving? This was evening schools, evening schools, whilst I was an article surveyor. So I was working during the day and going to evening school at night. Which was the top of your education, was it? That's right. Okay. And um, uh, he got me through the matriculation. I think it was nothing short of a miracle. And um, so I got into uh, College of Estate Management as a result of that to take the degree in surveying. And uh, uh, that lasted for about four years. And in 1951, um, I was called up and uh, joined the Royal Artillery. Okay, so 22-year-old. Yeah. Playing with big guns. Yeah, that's right. How did that sit with you? Well, as a matter of fact, I always wanted to go in the Navy, but uh, they had a, a complete uh, surfeit of applicants uh, there. So that wasn't... Uh, uh, very good. So they, they put me in the Royal, Royal Artillery, and it was ACAC. You know what ACAC is? Anti-aircraft. Anti-aircraft. And uh, in fact, it was is the... Is it called ACAC because that's the sound it makes? I don't know why they call it ACAC. Uh, but mm, I just wondered. Uh, anyway, uh, in fact, it was one of the, the most uh, interesting fascinating things that uh, I got involved in because um, you learned about radar. You learned about electronics, which was something I'd never touched before. And um, 
when I joined, when I went through Officer Cadet School and joined my regiment uh, in Gibraltar, they sent me back to the UK. I mean, this is the British Army all over. Sent me back to the UK to take a course in uh, radar. So I became a radar specialist. Okay. And then I returned to England. I went back to Gibraltar, but returned to England when the regiment was disbanded. And I became the regimental uh, radar instructor. And I ran a school for the best part of uh, a year. Okay. And radar is relatively early because it was developed in what, 42, 3, 4? Oh, it was, it was developed uh, just prior to the war. Was it? And literally saved England from the German invasion because without radar, we wouldn't have been able to cope. Mm. Um, I didn't realise it was quite that old. I thought it was during the war. I know. And that saved our bacon, there's no doubt about that. Anyway, um, in the 1952s, 3s, they were just bouncing signals off the the moon. So that shows you how rudimentary... I'm impressed they were doing that back then. I thought they would have just been bouncing off the ionosphere. No, no. Back in those <laughs> they, were, they were bouncing off the moon. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I think, I think that's impressive for the early 50s. Yeah. You know, 10 whatever years, 10 a few years of radar being developed, and they're already doing that. Yeah. And did you, were you actually involved with some of the developments of radar in those early days? Not really, no. The scientists were doing that and sending in the I was, I was literally training. An input came in of 30 soldiers, and my job was to train them, uh, or rather with my, what we called ACIGs, that's the uh, sergeant majors, the regimental sergeant majors. Uh, they taught the radar elements to the, uh, to the uh, conscripts. Right. And um, that, uh, I think education uh, was a, a very um, serious element in my education. Mm. What rank were you? Uh, I finished up as captain in the territorial. And then... Uh, What's the territorials? Territorials? Well, um, uh, territorials are the uh, civilian uh, activity of the army. That is where people go to get trained up without being in the army, but being trained to be a soldier. Right. And uh, uh, in fact, the moment war broke up, all the territorials, as we call them, all went into the army straight away, you know, within a week. Sounds like reservists. Yeah, yeah. it is reservists. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. You're trained as a surveyor, is, is that the correct term? Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that handy, that knowledge, the greater knowledge of yeah. what you learnt in yeah. working with radar? Yeah, I think that's why they chose me to be uh, the instructor, yeah. It'd give you a good sense of spatial, yeah, space and well, angles and dimension and all that sort of thing. Yeah, you? I mean, you were familiar with topography, mm. with uh, levels, mm. uh, how they were calculated, sea levels, you know, mean sea levels, all that sort of thing. All It, it was second nature to me, by, mm. whereas it was first, you know, very difficult for, mm. for conscripts. Mm. But, um, yeah, it did help. Did you, question. did you ever see any um, post-World War II action? You know, any of the little skirmishes that the Brits got into? No, uh, none at all. Um, 
Uh, my, my activities in Gibraltar consisted of sailing, uh, mainly. I mean, to be an officer in peacetime was, uh, was wonderful. <laughs> it, was like, it was like going to uh, Loughborough College for sports and, and being trained. You know, we played rugby, we played football, cricket, squash, tennis, anything, golf, anything you like. Riding. Right. I used to ride every morning over the sands. Terrific. A halcyon day. I enjoyed it. Yes. I really did. <laughs> if you could only see the smile on Colin's face right now. <laughs> I hated the colonel. I loved his wife. <laughs> but I loved the army. It was really terrific. Although I was very pacific in uh, Outlaw. Why didn't you stay in the military? Oh, no. It was, it was like Boy Scouts growing up, you know. It's, uh, it, it was... I don't take easily to to orders, which I know to be wrong. I don't mind taking orders when they're okay, but uh, no, I, I, and it was very petty in some respect. Right. Some respect. Uh-huh. No, it wasn't for me. No, I, w- I was determined to go go and uh, and find a business. Yeah, is that where you took up sailing? Is that is that where you learned to sail? Uh, learned to sail. Uh, no, before I went into the army. Um, Again, by chance, walking along the seafront, saw a lot of boats uh, uh, scurrying around and then all pointing off in the same direction. And uh, what I was watching was a race, of course, of dinghies. And um, a chap um, uh, was smiling at me as I was looking at the, the race. And he said, uh, you ever done any sailing? So I said, no. So I said, well, would, would you like to be my crew? Oh, I said, sure, <laughs> you know, so off I went. <laughs> and that was it. And it, it was a lifetime uh, friendship as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Till he got killed in a car crash. But, uh, yeah, very great friend. Right. I know sailing's a major part of your life. You still sail, don't you? I do, but I haven't sailed now for three years, something <laughs> like that. Uh, it isn't that, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, it, it's about two years. Um I sold my boat a little while ago. I was immediately going to buy another one, but of course, things get in the way. And um, uh, one of the things was that, of course, I I got married again. Mm. And uh, uh, it wasn't that there was any break on on me to go sailing again. It was just that it was impractical because we decided to live in France there was a stepdaughter of uh, four years old, and uh, it was it was time consuming. Sure, sure. So I used to I used to go over and charter boats in the Mediterranean and uh, sail there. Have you ever competed in sailing? Oh yeah. 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 What standard? Oh, and uh, dinghy dinghies. Uh, it was all fun with dinghies, but it right. was serious racing. Right, really was. Okay. I learned. Well, you do learn more from dinghies uh, than any other type of sailing because it's it's a it's a balancing act between you, the sails, and the wind, and uh, uh, your reflex has got to be immediate. Uh, whereas on bigger boats, you know, forty footers, uh, which uh, eventually I bought into, um, uh, there's there's more time to react. Right. Um, it's a slower. Sure. Although you go faster because of the length of the boat, it's a slower turn 
when you're when you're veering. What do you love most about sailing? I've come across a few people who've done a bit of sailing, and they go all <coughs> poetry when when you start talking about sailing. And something I don't understand: what is the majesty of sailing? Well, I suppose if you put it into two two sectors, one is the poetry. I mean, it's you and the sea and the wind, and you. Uh, it's very romantic. You're you're going from port to port, and uh, um, it, it's a it's a very sublime experience. Um, mostly when the conditions are good, of course, yes, or yes. reasonable. Uh, and on the other hand, it's very exhilarating from the point of view of danger, um, knowledge, anticipation. Uh, when you're you're constantly thinking of where should I go or what should I do if so and so happens, I mean, supposing you've got a uh, storm storm uh, signal from uh, on the radio, you know, where do I go? Mm. So you've got to think of all that in advance, and uh, and then of course there's the uh, uh, the there's the uh, process of um, Riding out a storm, if you like, um, looking after your crew, making sure that they're fed, and, mm. and so on and so forth. But it's something which you are in control of, and uh, this is why I always like being the captain. <laughs> of, uh, in that, I think I'm competent, and I can look after my crew. Right, yeah. right. And is it that same personality trait within you that <coughs> led you to having your own business? Well, it wasn't exactly my own business. Joined the firm that I eventually ended up in in 1954 when I came out of the army. Stories behind that. But uh, to cut it short, I, I had taken holiday work with them when I was in my teens just to get experience. And um, I bumped into this... Uh, the owner of the, the firm, uh, going down Bond Street. I think I was in uniform at the time. I was going, it was the coronation business, you know, the lining of the route and all that. And I bumped into him and uh, he persuaded me to come back to his office and said, um, <coughs> Colin, uh, join us uh, when you come out of the army and you'll be a partner within three years. And I was. Wow. Uh, in 1957, I was made a partner. And I stayed with that firm until 1989. This is as a surveyor? As a surveyor. A surveying firm. Well, surveyor. Yeah. Um, I mean, we well, were... Well, you'd be business person more than a surveyor at that level, wouldn't you? Well, you think about surveyors as people looking through theodolites and uh, making making maps and so mm. on. It wasn't that at all. There are seven divisions in surveying including aerial photography, uh, marine uh, surveying, etc., etc. And I was in what they call the valuation uh, division, which dealt with state agency, construction, management, sales, auctions, right. lettings, all the, the uh, uh, general work of commercial business. It wasn't residential. Okay. Except for a... For but, but we're talking almost real estate. 
We are talking about real estate. Right, okay. And uh, the firm was about 17 strong when I joined it and was 500 strong when I left it. That was in the UK. Then we merged with another company in France which had um, representation in most, most of the capital. And that was another 500. And then we had alliances with uh, associations with uh, America, Australia. In fact, uh, one of the... Uh, have you heard of Colliers? Yes. In Australia? Yes, I have. Well, the, the, the president of Colliers... What is Colliers? Colliers is exactly what I, I was... Oh, in. really? Yeah. Okay, I've heard of it, but I didn't know what Co- it was. Colliers, firm surveyors okay. and uh, uh, investment consultants. And the man that is chairman... Uh, or rather president today, used to work for me. And we married up later on when I went to Australia, and uh, we're, we're still friends. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you enjoy business? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And in 89 you left to retire, or...? Well, it was wonderful from the point of view of business. The kaleidoscope of uh, personalities, situations, problems, successes, failures, all that added up to a terrific um, variety of work. What I didn't like so much was the administration. And I had 45 partners, and they were a pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, they really what, were. What, managing personalities? Oh, yes. I mean, you've got all sorts of personalities coming sure. up. And some were very helpful and very cooperative, and others were... Bloody nuisance, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, taken as a whole, we, we operated. And uh, when I retired, we had, we had one of the, the best businesses in the UK. Right. You said that you, the company bought or merged, merged. with a French company. Yeah. Now, you're bilingual. <coughs> and I remember asking you years ago, how good is your French? And yeah. you said, I can read it, I can write it. I can speak it, and I can understand the humour of it. Mm. And I thought, wow, if you can understand the humour of the second <laughs> language, yeah. you must have nailed the second language because there's so many subtle layers of subtext in humour. Well, how, how did you learn French? How did, how did you come across French? When I finished, uh, when I first of all, I when I was in my te- teens, I sailed France, and when I landed on the beach and smelt the tobacco and the boulangerie. Uh, it, was, it was just as, you know, it was a welcome home almost. I found it fascinating, and I found the French people extremely nice and always have done, well, you know, with certain exceptions. But um, uh, when I finished my, my, uh, my, my degree, I took a short course in French, so that I could get along. And, uh, and then when I came out of the army, I, of course, uh, I of course uh, met Francoise. Now, did you meet Francoise? Never met Francoise, no. no. Francoise is your first wife. She was my first wife and she was French. And um, uh, I became part of a French family, basically. Still am. Mm. Uh, and uh, Francoise was the most... Uh, dynamic uh, personality I have ever come across. I mean, she was lovely. Um, 
she had humour. She had a wonderful father as well uh, who had... Uh, well, I think uh, that's where she got a funny bone from. You know, right. From him. him. From him. But uh, she was a wonderful woman. And uh, we spent uh, 30, 33 years together. So, automatically, um, my French developed as I participated with the family. Mm. And then uh, we took her home in... Uh, Took her home in Majev, which you've been to. Yes, Majev's up in the French Alps. That's it's right. It's beautiful. It is. It's a lovely place. And uh, uh, we, when I married uh, my second wife, who was also French, um, uh, we decided to live in France. Now, um, the only sort of downturn on my French... Uh, language is the grammar, or was the grammar. So, <clears throat> when we lived in uh, Majev and Geneva at the same time, uh, I used to go to uh, one of the international schools for French lessons, and I found myself amongst um, 12 ladies, uh, varying from um, a, a wonderful blonde Russian girl, very beautiful, of 22 years to an old biddy of uh, about uh, 60 years. You see. Right. I was the oldest member of all, of course. But um, uh, I had two years of uh, French grammar. Very nice. Right. right. Enjoyed it immensely. I've, in this seven-week European odyssey that I've been on, I've spent time in Berlin <coughs> and a little bit of time in France. I spent a week in Bonn and a few days in Paris. And now I'm here, and I can't help but do comparisons of the culture and yeah. the cultural styles, <coughs> the things that one country will do better than another country, which I found quite bizarre because all the countries are so close by Australian standards. What do you see as the differences between French and British culture? You are British. You are, you're, you're Scottish. You're very proud of your Scottish heritage. Mm. Are you Scottish English? Is that your blend? <coughs> yeah, I was born in London. Right. My sisters uh, were born in uh, Scotland. Okay. And I know, so, <coughs> so you're that Scottish English. We've got group. Scottish roots. Yeah. Yes, yes. <coughs> how, does it, how does it compare the culturally, the difference between French and English? Where, you know, and you were married, you've been married to two beautiful French women. So you can see it so close. You're so ingrained. You are a, an Englishman who has lived so deeply in the French culture. I would say it's absolute. Uh, there's a terrific difference between the English culture and the French culture. You've got to remember that basically every Frenchman uh, remembers the revolution. Uh, he is a Republican. Uh, he's not a monarchist. Um, he thinks in terms of social um, behaviour and policies uh, um, in a, to a much more degree than, uh, than the English do. Um, I noticed the difference uh, uh, dramatically when I, came, when I come back. What I like to say, uh, which the, the British will not grasp, um, is that uh, I'm a European rather than a Brit or a, a frog or a kraut or, or a mick. Um, 
I think it's in, I think it's very important that we have a united Europe and a cohesive Europe. And I'm afraid that um, I dislike the attitude of the British towards the European Community. They think of something that uh, is going to wrest the power from their government and overtake it. Whereas, of course, if they joined in and uh, became part of a united Europe, I think, uh, well, the world would be a better place. We've got the experience. We've got vast experience. We've got wonderful culture, variety of languages, beautiful countryside, and huge industrial and technical ability if we want to use it. And uh, personally, I don't want to be uh, uh, dominated by the Americans or the Japanese or the Russians or anybody else. I want to have a voice and an equal one. So uh, that, I think, is one of the uh, black points of being British in that the majority of the people, of course, are fed uh, what the media uh, would like to feed them, and unfortunately, they are generally anti-European. How would you like to fix it? How would I like to fix it? I would like a man of strength and character, somebody like de Gaulle or Churchill, to really take it over and drive it. We're talking about Europe, or we talking about? I'm talking about Europe, right? Yeah. A true leader, a statesman, yeah, and a leader. I mean, the the American, the 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 French have always considered us uh, as too much to the the American side of things. They uh, they think we're too pro-American that we always want to do what the Americans want us to do, etc., etc. And to do to a degree, they're right, uh, and that is why when we we applied in 1960s to join the European community, we were refused twice by de Gaulle. He said, you're pro, too pro-American. And, and you would be a, uh, a rather controversial factor in Europe if you entered. And uh, it took Heath, who was very pro-European uh, and not so pro-American, uh, to bring it about. How do you see British society today? Uh, a bit sad, quite honestly. Um, uh, to quote a, a few statistics, first of all, um, we're bottom of the league in Europe educationally. Not talking about the, um, the, the Far Eastern, some of the Far Eastern European countries that have just joined. But when it comes to Western Europe, we're bottom of the league. 40% of our school leavers are illiterate or semi-illiterate. We pay too much uh, attention, not that it's bad, too much attention to the social aspects of life and uh, the classics and the politics of, of life instead of the technical and industrial and scientific. And we've got to cure that. We don't have an MIT in Europe. We should have. Um, I mean, we must get, have this technical ability to, you know, solve the fusion um, mm. 
mm. dilemma yeah. with, with the atom. Yeah. Mean, it's, uh, one, one of many things. <coughs> one of many things. Who, who in Europe's doing it right, do you feel? Well, at the moment, Germany is, is probably the most successful. It has a very good industrial base, and uh, its scientific uh, uh, background is extremely good. And that is only just um, followed by France. I think France has very good industry, very good science, very good technical ability. Mm. I mean, when you think of it, France is the soul of Airbus. Without France, Airbus wouldn't be. It it got the TGV going. You've been on it, I Yes, I have. Stunning. Well, uh, 25 years ago. And it, 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 it travels at 580 kilometres an hour. I mean, terrific. It's an extraordinary piece of machinery beyond. And uh, then again, uh, I forget whether it's Ariane, I think it's Ariane, the, the rocket uh, mm-hmm. launchers, the satellite launchers. They took the, the lead in, in that. Unfortunately, British uh, came out of the major part of it. Um, but they have more than 50% of uh, the business of satellite launchers. Uh, and 50%, more than 50% of the aircraft industry versus Boeing, you know, mm. in America. Mm. I mean, it's, I, th- I think France is an extraordinarily talented country. Really do. I grew up in an era where the <coughs> British, British Empire still was resonating yeah. as being significant. I was born in 1960. So in the 60s, it was still seen as significant, but I don't think people actually realised that the British Empire was over. Oh, yeah. The decline of the British Empire, do you think that has caused some of these social dilemmas that we have now? Almost certainly, yes. The post-war experience of, uh, of Britain was, was unfortunate in that uh, um, whereas America piled in to build, rebuild Japan and Germany, we were left with an enormous debt to America, uh, which we've only just finished paying. And uh, uh, it, it impeded us in the sort of resurgence of our industries, the rebuilding of our industries and scientific in, uh, establishments. I mean, we were a great industrial nation. Mm. I'd like to think that um, had it not been for those circumstances, we would have, uh, we would have been on a, a par with the other countries. But <clears throat> somehow, I think you're right, the, the post-colonial uh, era, I'm afraid, had, um, had got us used to the, the rather lethargic way in which we conducted the country. And... Um, we were dragged into the Cold War by the Americans again when we could least afford it. I mean, instead of doing what was necessary for our country, we were confronting a, an almost non-existent threat from Russia. Mm. Mm. Playing spy games. Yeah. Post-war, <laughs> colonialism in Britain still had a huge impact in that there were all these colonies that were being given back their own autonomy. And then the migration started here in Britain. Yeah. I'd imagine in 1945 there wouldn't have been too many black faces in UK. 
Yeah. Now you walk through London and it's a sea of brown and black faces and a few yellows as well. How much has society changed from your point of view since those days when you were young? Well, it's good and bad in actual fact. I mean, the bad, uh, the bad uh, aspect of it is, is not the immigration itself. It's the lack of control on the immigration. I mean, we've opened our doors wide. We said in 19, uh, whenever it was, uh, probably 50s, Duncan Sanders, every colonial country can have a passport. Any individual of a colonial country can have a pass- British passport. Well, that, was, that was madness, absolute madness. And uh, as a result, you know, now it's, it's almost in the situation where the people controlling the immigration are past immigrants themselves. So they take a, a rather favourable uh, attitude towards it. But I, I, I mean the, the pressure that it puts on housing, on hospitals, on the taxpayers. Uh, I mean, it's enormous. And really, it must be controlled. Mm. Otherwise, we'll, we'll subside into an uh, Orwellian uh, situation. Orwellian's a strong word, isn't it? Yeah. I've on my blog and my own personal addendum episodes that I add to the podcast, I've been talking a little bit about the prevalence of the CCTVs everywhere and what I call an underlying state of fear that seems to exist here. Bearing in mind there were a couple of bombings a few years ago sure. which were catastrophic. Yeah. But I remember coming here in ninety three and there was this state of fear which may have been bred by the IRA bombings. Can you explain this to me? What's what's going on with this country in uh, that it seems scared? Well, it is scared to... Or rather, I think it's... Um, uh, the, the, the fear is promoted uh, to a certain extent by the government uh, to defend their policies. Um, you've got to understand that... Uh, with the IRA, there has always been an avenue for negotiations. But for many years, British government wouldn't even talk to the IRA. And when they did talk to them, eventually, uh, it was uh, in secret uh, where the press were excluded entirely. So that went on. The... The, the problem with Ireland was that in Northern Ireland, which was the British sector, um, there was absolute discrimination against the ta- Catholics by the Protestants. Um, you couldn't get a job in a bank. You couldn't get all rather at a certain limit. Yes, you get it low down, but you'd never get it there. You couldn't join the army. You couldn't join the, the civil uh, police. You couldn't uh, uh, join, be a politician. I mean, all that was literally a boiler uh, for reaction by the the Irish, and uh, we we just would not um, face up to the facts that you you have to confront, you have to negotiate, you have to talk, and at this moment of time, we have a similar situation for different reasons. First of all, we've been dragged into this war by, uh, with Iraq, 
Um, uh, we're threatening Iran. We're letting the greatest humanitarian crisis ever in Palestine go uh, by the board. You know, everything's acceptable. Uh, and if only we would realize that if we would get out of people's countries, and I'm talking militarily, the terrorism would stop. And it's that that is causing the fear. Uh, the government wants to justify its policies of invading another country illegally and uh, condoning uh, Israel occupying Palestine illegally. It is for those reasons that there is a reaction from the indigenous people and the people of the same religion and, uh, and faith. So uh, if, we, if we get out of other people's countries, and Al-Qaeda has said, Bin Laden himself has said it very clearly, terrorism will stop the moment that the last foreign military person leaves our country. And uh, I believe that's the solution. Right. But of course there are other so aspects at play. When I walk down the street and I see signs saying, for your protection, CCTVs have been installed, and, mm. and I look up on poles and I see these cameras and I go to the Science Museum or the railway station and I hear public announcements saying, be aware of bags sitting there and notify people, and there's this constant hum of, it is dangerous to be out of your house. It is dangerous. Is it true? Is it valid? Is it dangerous? <laughs> well, <laughs> I I don't think it's dangerous in one sense. I think we've got uh, more to um, to fear from the yobbos on the street than we do from terrorists, quite honestly. Um, but uh, the only the only argument that I can uh, uh, can promote really is that uh, when the the bombing took place in July of uh, 2005, I think it was, four or five. Anyway, whenever it took place, they had those birds on photographs straight away. I mean, they got them. Right. So from a point of view of prosecuting and preventing um, suspicious movements, you know, or investigating, they have a role to play. But uh, frankly, I think we're taking it too far. And there are other solutions that we could uh, bring about. Yeah, yeah. I understand you're writing your memoirs. Uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> what are you wanting to put right. across? Oh, nothing. Or you yeah. just want to revisit old memories? Well, no. Look, the the uh, well, it's partially that, but the the main point is that I would love to know more about my mother and father and my grandfather and grandmother. I mean, I would love to know all sorts of things about them. And it was really uh, prompted by the wish to just give them a, a little um, uh, background as to where we were coming from at our time, in our era. You know. right. So the memoirs are for the family? Really, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Ah, okay, okay. If you were to... Uh 
consider your life and the way this society is and the experiences that you've had in your life and you were to talk to your uh, grandchildren, those that are born and those that are yet to be born, what would you want to share with them? Well, and for greater society for that matter, because this does go out to quite a few people. Uh, to be humane, I think. Um, I mean, when it comes to politics, even though I've, I've benefited uh, by um, a free enterprise society, um, I nevertheless saw things and was conscious of things that uh, I would like to put to rights at the time. And uh, it first... It, first came to me when uh, I was 15 years old and uh, whilst I was working as an article pupil um, the rent collector used to go away on holiday and when he went on holiday I used to do the rent collecting and the majority of the rent collecting rent collections were in Mayfair and in particular Soho I know they're two separate, but they're, they're more or less side by side. And uh, that brought home to me that um, there are some people living in fairly dire circumstances. I mean, it, it was very much a, a mix of people that I came across. I mean, uh, came across deserters the American and the British Army. Um, I came across uh, American soldiers that had married uh, British girls. Um, I came across aristocrats uh, from other countries that were living in dire poverty because of their inability to earn a living or do anything useful. And I, I tell you, sometimes I had to, s to hold my breath because of the stench of the... Of the uh, of the uh, accommodations and um, on other occasions I met very poor women on their own um, who were absolutely pristine in their ha habits I mean their, their accommodation or their flat was impeccable and they'd always invite me in have a cup of tea and a biscuit and uh, and tell them about, they would tell me about their children and, and so on and so forth. But it brought home to me that uh, you don't have to be rich to be nice to people. Um, and uh, that, that, I think that experience of rent collecting taught me more about uh, human behaviour than most. How should humans behave? They should respect each other. You know, it doesn't mean stifling talent. It doesn't mean uh, that um, some people aren't um, cleverer than others. There will always be. I believe in a meritocracy. Absolutely. Um, where else do you get the, the leaders and the chiefs of industry and uh, the great scientists? I believe in that. But at the same time, I think there should be a consciousness uh, amongst people that um, uh, really they ought to give 
will help to allow the bloke. I think that's a good place to end, Colin. Mm. I think that's a good place to end. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on my show. <laughs> this has been well, your story. Excellent interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> you just told me why you live your life, mate. That's mm. all. That's there are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. French, they're always making jokes about somebody else. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's a striking difference between the French and the English. But the French will pay out on other people. Yeah, oh, yeah. They'll, uh, they'll put the needle in and uh, think it's funny. Um, but that doesn't say that they haven't got a nice sense of humour as well. They do. Mm. I think uh, if you can tell a joke in French, uh, you're halfway there. Mm. Mm. Uh, I love Python. I think a lot of the sketches from Monty Python, which are vast majority of them self-deprecating. Yeah. And I think that humour is very similar to Australian humour and also Canadian humour. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think they're all very similar. I, uh, yeah. Uh, and I know you're very proud to be British. Uh, yeah. The fact that you live here, you could easily choose not to live here permanently. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine. I mean, I've, I've got some good friends in France, but I can't imagine really wanting to live anywhere else where, you know, where I've got my friends and my roots and, uh, and so on. Uh, I mean, I can live in France. I, I think it's the most super country to live in um, with, with a, a pragmatism that is uh, so much better than our own. I mean... We, if our government can take the wrong turning, they'll take it, you know. Mm. Mm. And pragmatism is an important thing, isn't it? To be able to go, we've just got to get the job done. Mm. Let's just do it. Yeah. It's not, you, know, you said the word meritocracy. Mm. You, know, you do need to have somebody driving the ship. Sure, yeah. You have to have the captain who yeah. says, well, we're going this way. You know, if I've made the wrong decision, it's my decision, but at least we're going somewhere rather than chasing your tail. And mm. um, I... I can't help but look at the history, post-World War II history, and the way the Americans, because of their huge industrial model, probably saved Britain from the Nazis and probably saved Australia from the Japanese. But I wonder what is in the contract that they still pull out and wave under our politicians' noses when they want to get into a scrap. can't help but wonder if there is some, something there. How do you mean something there? Well, the fact that in Australia we have to allow certain military bases, American military bases. The fact that when America wanted to make an illegal war in Iraq, the only two countries that seriously joined America yeah, was Britain, Britain and Australia. Australia. Yeah. <clears throat> it's almost as though we saved you in World War Two. You owe us. Still. Well, I have this argument with... Uh, Americans, on a regular basis. In 1939-40, when we were bleeding on our knees, absolutely stripped of everything in terms of munitions and armaments, etc., a plea was made to America, help us. No white knight came charging over the hill. They said, we are... We will not get involved in this scrap, didn't mm. they? Yeah. And up until Pearl Harbor, um, 
only 17% of Congress were pro becoming involved in the European war. 17? 17%. 83 against. So uh, there's no doubt about it. If, if the Japanese hadn't invaded, it would have gone on for a long, long time more. And um, I, I often say to the Americans, you know, you say that you, uh, you helped us win the war, and you did. I mean, you, you supplied us with uh, the equipment that was necessary to do the job. You certainly sent that over in vast quantities, for which we paid. Good business for you. We hung on. The British hung on, you know, and provided the platform for the invasion of Europe uh, uh, later on. Uh, so it, it, it uh, and, and the Russians did the killing. They destroyed the German army. Right, okay. And without the Americans, without the British, if we hadn't invaded Europe, Russians would have come straight through. Mm without any help from anybody. Mm. Mm. And how often do you see mention of the Holocaust in the papers? Uh, it turns up quite regularly, yeah. here and there, off yeah. and on. Yeah. How often do you hear about 27 million Russians getting killed during the war? Most people, I know about it, because I've read a bit of history. Most people have got no idea that the Russians no. destroyed more people than, if more of their own people than the Nazis ever did. No, but I'm talking about the war. Um, the Russians killed 27 million <coughs> people in the war. The Germans killed 27 million Russians during the war. Right. In other words, the loss... Uh, that Russia sustained. Yeah. Horrendous. Horrendous. What I'm saying is that really, um, you don't hear any mention of the other side of the face. Oh, I see. We, we hear about who died on the Western side. Of yeah, the, as I say, Russians side. did the killing, the Americans supplied the men and material, and we hung on. Right. You know. right. Well, Britain was down to its bootstraps. It couldn't do much more than just hang on, could it? That's right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just, I've, I've had some extraordinarily emotional, emotional experiences in Berlin. Yeah, um, I you know I walked around where the wall was and where a bit of it still is. I took some time to learn a bit of history about it, about communism, about the war, <coughs> you know, the Holocaust Memorial, and I just took time to actually look at where this space was that was the killing zone between the walls, mm. and and reflected on the fact that eighty percent of this city of Berlin was completely wiped away. By World War Two, yeah, and you can still see it. You can still see marks of all mm. the buildings, and I just got immensely sad from it. Just the sheer stupidity of it and waste. It it didn't seem to achieve anything, except make a few people very, very wealthy, and maybe enable America to become very, very wealthy, and maybe that's tied together. I just found it so wasteful, so immensely wasteful. I'm afraid so. Um, but then all wars are wasteful. 
one. I mean, sometimes they're justified uh, on occasions, but on very few occasions. And I'm afraid that our political systems are absolutely wrong. Yeah. You know, we don't... Uh, I mean, in this country, we, we, we change ministries every five minutes, you know, of your agriculture, go to the hospital, or go to education. Um, it's absolutely incredible. These people know very little about the subject in which they're, they're uh, policing. Mm. And uh, I think it should be obligatory that... Um, Politicians should have to be qualified in a degree where history, economics, and politics play a part, and that they are not uh, elected on party politics. They're elected for their their ability. Now. That's a long cry. It'll never come around. How do you friend. do it? No. How, how do you achieve it? How do you even get a system in place? Like, democracy's not working. Capitalism's not working. But there are elements of it that are good. Communism doesn't work, but there are elements of it that are good. How do you... Do we need to have another Marx turn up who redefines a new political system? Well, in my view, uh, I'm afraid that un unless somebody does, um, the free enterprise capitalist system is going to kill the world. I mean, it really will. Mm. Because, I mean, 50% of what we produce goes into the way cash, the ash rate can. It's, it's, it's crazy. Mm. I've got this idea, the radical idea I know, but I think if somebody could develop a separation recycling machine, a bit like the rotary diggers yeah. that you see in coal mines <coughs> just grind into landfill and then dig up landfills to recover all of the components in them, separate them out into their individual streams and then use landfill as a mine. The amount of value that must be in those yeah. landfills. It, well, you say the amount of value. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't pay. It wouldn't, it wouldn't pay enough. To do it. No, that's why it doesn't happen. That's why it doesn't happen. That's right. Yeah. But if you could develop some system to treat that as a resource, that'd be a good start. Maybe one day it will Maybe. be worth Maybe. mining it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Quite yeah. agree. But at the first, in the first instance, let's not put the stuff in there in the first place. I saw a, a, um, not a Citron, a Peugeot in uh, France, in Paris. It's 80%, 98% polycarbonate which means that it's fully recyclable. Yeah. Brilliant. You know, when you finish with it, you put it through the shredder and you turn it into bottles. Yeah. You know, things like that. <laughs> I love that concept. I love that concept. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, uh, I'm, you know, the industries sell us what they want to sell us, not what we need. And, uh, you know, the wastage is enormous. Mm. And the trouble, I mean, do you imagine there were probably, what, 20,000 people that went into the computer business trying to do what Microsoft has done, how many are left? Right. Sure. What a waste. Mm. I mean, why not pick 20 of the most able companies, whether they're big or small, uh, and say, right, you know, compete it, we want three. That's right. And the way it turns out in the end, 
you normally end up with one or two mm. at the very end. That's right. Look at electricity companies around the world. Look at car manufacturing. That's a classic. You know, how many car manufacturers were there in the early 20th century? And we're down to, I think, three major car manufacturers yeah. in the world. Yeah. Same sort of thing. Um, and then you end up with nothing radical or revolutionary. It's just white bread. Everybody's eating white bread. What about politics? What about politics? Yeah, what about politics? What do you think we should be doing there? Well, I think they should be revolutionised, frankly. I mean, I, uh, if, if only we had a government that was capable of running uh, a country. I mean, at a, cabinet, at a cabinet um, uh, meeting, somebody said to Tony Blair, the trouble with you, Tony, is you can't run a bloody thing. And he couldn't run a bloody thing. He could, he could posture, he could speak, he was very articulate, put it over and all the rest of it. And when he said, you know, I did the thing that I thought was right in going to war with Iraq, I mean, what absolute egotism. I... How do you cure that? Well, you can't. You basically press the delete button. <coughs> Get rid of it. You know, he. I made the statement earlier. We have a lot of politicians. We rarely have statesmen. I can only think of a few statesmen. You mentioned Churchill before. You know, yeah, but he wasn't so good as a politician in peacetime. Well, that's why he was outed within months of the war being over. Mm. Um, and. But he was a good politician, statesman during wartime. He did what he needed to do. And he was, was the man of the century, no doubt about it. Well, I think so, anyway. Yeah, you may be right. You may be right. But he was definitely there for that particular job. Mm. But once the war was over, yeah, it was, yeah, oh, well, sorry, you know, you, you've got no value. And he may not have had any value post-war either. Um, you mentioned de Gaulle, so a man of that era. Now, he seems to be more of a statesman in the sense that he was peacetime and a few little scraps, wasn't he? Mm. I wrote a, I wrote a, um, a thesis on uh, De Gaulle, and uh, I'm, I'm taking a <laughs> very irregular, but I'm taking a, uh, a writing course. Okay. And I submitted this um, thing about De Gaulle and uh, Churchill, and the paradox is that Churchill was a civilian. He had a, a military background, but got out of it as soon as he could. Um, uh, but he was a great war leader, whereas he was a civilian politician, basically. And the reverse applied to de Gaulle. He was a military man, you know, up to his eyeballs, but he became uh, a very strong uh, peacetime politician, okay. leader. Okay. And I think he... I mean, the... the he was absolutely incorruptible. Was he? No, absolutely. Yeah. Never took anything, didn't take a pension from the state, nothing. Right, right. Um, That's why he's, he's so admired in, uh, in France today. Yeah. I think statesmen are a very rare animal. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I admire greatly Ben Franklin. I admire... Um, Gandhi, um, Abraham Lincoln. I think 
think there's some good men there. I, uh, and from what I've learnt recent months and years, Napoleon also. Now, you're talking about a military man who became a peacetime leader. I think Napoleon flipped between those two roles constantly, oh, yeah. didn't he? He was, brilliant. He'd go into a scrap and then he'd change the whole legal system and go well, into another yeah. scrap and he'd <coughs> you know, put a few roads in. Yeah, he was a, an army chief as well as a, a leader of the country. Mm. Um, but he, we were talking about this the other night. I mean, we, the thing about Napoleon was that he he didn't seek war. Um, uh, he was trying to uh, get a united Europe together and get rid of the injustices that the monarchy had imposed upon. Uh, certain countries. I mean, he came in after the revolution of France, so um, he didn't exactly uh, play a, a part in the uh, uh, the guillotine massacres. But uh, no, he he was a, he was a great man. Yeah, I've got books here of his, the memoirs of his. Um, I wouldn't call him his valet, but the man that was with him as uh, an assistant right throughout the wars. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, from what I've learned, he's a good man. Good man. We could, if we could clone him, it'd be worth having. Mm. Yeah, or something like that. Do you fear for the future? Yeah. I think we're careering towards destruction. I really do. Um, you know, it, it's always... One must always look on the bright side of life, but I can't see anything but disaster confronting us. I really can't. I mean, I was reading uh, yesterday about the proliferation of the nuclear weapons. I mean, somebody's going to use them. And it won't be probably um, uh, America or Britain or France or Russia. It'll probably be somebody from Pakistan, Mm. you know, that uh, flips one into New York by a sailing boat or something like that and, uh, and blows the bloody place up. Mm. I've heard of things like backpack, backpack bombs, mm. you know, nuclear explosives yeah. that you can fit in a, a backpack. Yeah. Seems hard to believe, but you know, that could, even if it just wiped out a couple of city blocks, that's still mm. horrendous. I mean, in the non-proliferation treaty, I mean, the, the countries solemnly pledged to reduce it to zero. Do you know in 1973, when Egypt retook Sinai from the, the, the uh, Israeli high command were seriously thinking about using nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah. But prepared to use them. Mm. And where would things have escalated to from there? Well, we never found out. Bay of Pigs, same thing. I heard that was very close. What? Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs, yeah. In Cuba. Yeah. That was very close. Um, you know, yeah. Did I, did I mention the other night, talking about uh, the Kennedy Khrushchev no, confrontation know. about, you know, uh, um, Cuba? and the missile things, that um, 
it's always it's always lauded as a, a, a brilliant victory from uh, Kennedy, who stood down uh, Gorbachev and uh, Khrushchev. Khrushchev. Uh, but it wasn't so. Wasn't it? No. It was uh, Turkey. The Americans had missiles in Turkey on the borders of Russia. Uh, sim- similar situation to Cuba and America. Right. They did the deal. Yeah. We'll we'll take ours out if you take yours out. Oh, so that's all it was. We'll that's take them out of Turkey if you take them out of Cuba. That's right. <laughs> that's what happened. In fact, Kennedy, at one meeting with uh, uh, his cabinet, he said... Um, he said, I mean, I can't understand these Russians. I mean, they're putting these missiles on our doorsteps. I mean, supposing we were had uh, missiles, uh, you know, on the doorstep of Russia. And so one of his generals said, well, in actual fact, Mr. President, we have. <laughs> and he didn't even know. He didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. That, and now I look at somebody like George W. Bush, and I go, you know, this man... Fortunately, his puppet masters are controlling him, mm. but I wouldn't trust him with that red button. Um, I don't know whether I trust his puppet masters either, but at least they've got some knowledge, I'm sure. Mm. I, uh, I mean, uh, there's the other incredible thing about Israel and Palestine that, uh, who was it? First of all, there was Casper uh, Weinberg. Mm-hmm. who was uh, Minister of Defence. Then there was um, Cohen, Minister of Defence. Ross, negotiator for the Middle East. Madeleine Albright, who served under Clinton. And then there was um, Richard Pearl, Wolfowitz, Faith, Libby, who's now in prison, of course, uh, etc., all Jewish people who consider themselves as belonging to Israel in prime positions in the American cabinet. I find that extraordinary. How do they expect the Palestinians to get any justice from that situation? Mm. And the moment you even suggest something pro-Palestinian, you're seen as being a, oh, yeah. you know, anti-Semitism. Yes. Yeah. Semitic, anti-Semitic, aren't you? You read Chomsky? No, I never have. I've been wanting to. Uh, I've been want, wanting to read him for some you time. You want to read Chomsky. Yeah. My God, he puts the, he puts the finger on the button. He really does. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard a couple of interviews with him, but I've never got around to actually picking up a book and reading mm. it. Um, yeah, it's... it's I, I think he's brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, he. All right, you can. You can. Uh, the only bad point about Chomsky is that he paints the picture. Um, he tells you what the oil industry is doing, and how they manipulate the government. Uh, no question about it, mm. they do it. Uh, and. What takes place in Haiti and what takes place in the South American states and Indonesia and so on and so forth. But he doesn't offer any solutions. In fact, I think I'll send him an email say, "Yeah, but what about the solution?" And that's, and that's unfortunately half of the problem, isn't it? Is yeah. you know, if you think that the 
our masters, they know what they want. They want absolute power and absolute control of everything. They know what they're going for. So they just maybe manipulate the world to suit that. How do we, if we want to have an egalitarian society, demand the opposite of that and a way of creating that society? How do we do that? How do we drive a society that, when you've got to have everybody going in the same direction? Hmm. My recorder. Your blog. It's one of the reasons I'm doing it, Colin. Because mm. my little bit. That is the only... Uh, way that I can see that the the younger generations can see exactly what is going on. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, the media is owned by industries, you know, the major companies. Mm. The internet is being swallowed up at the moment yeah. by major companies, and they are talking about locking it down and restricting its use and all That's sorts right. of ways. And they will work towards that. Yeah. One thing I love about human nature, though, is people are very good at sneaking through any crack. And yeah, it's like income tax, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. They put another lock on it and somebody sneaks through. <laughs> um, I find that fascinating. Okay. All right. Ah, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, I enjoy the talk anyway. Yeah, well, that's, that's it.